and start it over. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining the Zareer Merwanji audio and video experience. Today's uh, leadership topic is the post-pandemic leadership using the hashtag Ask Zareer. I love getting these questions on LinkedIn and my podcast and YouTube. Uh, please subscribe. Please follow if you can. And uh, today's topic, I'm going to kick off with just saying that, look, it's been over a year. Here we are after a year of the pandemic, probably one of the most extraordinary experiences that any of us has ever had. And the question I have for you is, what do you think the unexpected psychological carryovers might be? I mean, do you think we've kind of been okay? And part of me thinks that people have gotten a little bit more fragile, that it's almost like there's a sort of learned timidness that has come out of this. And some of the questions that are coming in through LinkedIn, uh, especially this past month, is have you seen any evidence of that or how would you characterize it? And this is a great question that was asked by one of my leadership students. And I think we've definitely all become much more aware of mental health and that it's a real thing and that mental health affects strong and healthy people, even my own children. And we all suffered trauma during COVID and I've been doing quite a bit of reading on it because the first thought that comes to my mind sometimes is, is it really that bad? And it is. And some of us dealt with it earlier. Some of us dealt with it later. Some of us are still dealing with it, but nobody escapes it. And if you think back when COVID first started, you know, many of us had to pivot our organizations, right? We had to pivot our business very quickly. And so I, like many others, we went into what we call mission mode. And I called a friend of mine who is active duty military right now, and I asked him a very, very simple question. I said, how do I compartmentalize my emotions so that I can stay focused on the mission. And he gave me a very stern warning. He said, Zareer, listen to me. You can't. He said, we can, we can compartmentalize our emotions for only a short period of time. And this is someone that's got years and years of experience uh, in the military, being deployed, going on missions, serving our country, giving us our freedom. But no one he says, no one escapes the trauma of combat. And he said, you may not even experience the trauma while you're in it. You may not experience it when you first come home. You may experience it months later. He says, I experience it four or five uh, months after I get home. So I immediately hung up the phone and I called all of my so-called A-type personality friends. And I said, okay, we think we're good but we're gonna get hit by this at some point. And we made a deal at that point at work that when we started to feel off of our game, we would call each other, we would text each other, we would send each other funnies. And you know, this is a safe space, right? And we made another deal that there would be no crying alone. That if you had to cry, you picked up the phone and you called somebody or you FaceTimed somebody or you just shot them a message and said, hey, I'm having a bad day. Well, about four or five months into COVID, I actually started to feel off of my game a little bit and I didn't know what was going on. So I called that same friend in the military and I asked 
I didn't ask any leading questions. I simply asked him, tell me what your symptoms are and like when you suffer the trauma, when you come home from combat. And he said, well, number one, he falls out of sleep pattern. He said he starts going to bed late for no reason and doesn't want to get up in the morning. And I thought to myself, yep, that was me. He also said he had some unproductive days and he comes up with an excuse like, it's okay, you know, you deserve a rest right now. Just have some ice cream and take a nap, it's fine. But then he has another and another and another. And I thought to myself, yep, me too. And he said he becomes very antisocial where he doesn't want to ask for help and he, and he definitely doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I thought to myself, yep, that's me too. And I started to realize what I was going through was actually trauma. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I may not have said this out loud recently, but the spirit moved me and I wanted to really blog about this. I wanted to write this article on my website. I wanted to post-produce the YouTube video for LinkedIn as well as my podcast. And I was afraid to use the D word. A lot of us are. Depression. For fear that that was some sort of a diagnosis, right? That I was a weak person or a weak man and I was going to be judged with my diagnosis. And I think a lot of people are afraid of, of that word, but that's exactly what I was going through. I was going through a lowercase d, depression. And I followed the rule that we actually set with our friends and I called people, I texted folks. I said, because one of the things I asked my friends is like, how do you overcome it? And he said, you have to force yourself back into a sleep pattern and force yourself to call friends and ask for help or join groups and just kind of link up with people and start networking because like attracts like. And so I think one of the things that comes out of COVID is we recognize just the importance of human connection. You know, we live in this very fast paced digital world, right? We kid ourselves to think that we had connections just because we were connected. But it was amazing to see when COVID started, regardless of somebody's age or a technological competency, we all picked up the phone. Just like young people were talking to each other. And I, and I think that intense craving for a human voice, a hug, a human touch, I think we're reminded just how fragile we really are as human beings. And by the way, that phrase I've mentioned, no crying alone, that's powerful. I mean, forgive me for saying, but are you wondering if I did cry with someone? Yes, I followed my own counsel to my friends. And when I had to cry, when I was overwhelmed, I picked up the phone and I just cried. And I had friends call me and do the same. And there was healing in that. The, the most important thing that came from it was that we didn't, none of us felt alone, right? And there's this intense safety in that. Having my wife by my side to cry on her shoulder, that's intense safety. That amazing sense of safety that we all desire as human beings. You know, you can't really feel safe when you're vulnerable. Like that's when we need it the most. But you have to build those relationships. You build those relationships in the happy times. You build those relationships in the good times where you think you're actually strong, where you think you're great. 
it's very hard to start building those relationships in the moment of a crisis. You seem desperate. And nobody really likes a desperate person, at least in my own opinion. And I think it's a lesson for leadership, quite frankly, which is you can't judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in calm waters. You judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in rough waters. So by the time you have... But the time in calm waters is when you're building relationship and trust and you don't really actually know if you have trusting relationships and trusting teams and loving relationships until the crisis actually strikes. And I heard this from a lot of people. When COVID happened, they commented on how they realized who their real friends were. Some people kind of fell by the wayside. It was nothing personal. It's just like we didn't call each other and we're still, you know, weren't angry or anything. But we just didn't do that like we should or we should have. And there are some people who came out of the woodwork to check in on us and those friendships really flourished. And that's what I mean. It takes hardship for those friendships and that trust to really bear the fruit. But that's why we have to invest in people when we're doing well and we don't think we need anybody. And I think we forget that. So here's another question from one of, one of our leaders in our community, Z Nation. And the question says, what would you say to someone who has really realized that they're in this moment what's been a really difficult year, and they actually don't feel that there's someone they could, they could lean on, for example, pick up the phone and cry with. Is it hopeless for them until this passes, or what would you say to them? There's an irony, there, there's an irony in when we need help. That's what I'm trying to say. And when I was reading the book, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek, I had the opportunity to spend some time with and read about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Really didn't know anything about it. I knew a friend once who took the 12-step program and it is a remarkable organization. And many of us are familiar with the 12-step program and many of us are familiar with the first step, which is admitting that you have a problem. But then there's the other 11 steps that also matter. And Alcoholics Anonymous knows that if you master the first 11 steps, but not the 12th one, you're likely to succumb to the disease. But if you master the 12 steps, you're more likely to overcome the disease. And that 12th step is to help another alcoholic. It's service, right? And so there's a great irony when we need help to actually help someone who's struggling with the same thing as us. And it's the most healing thing that we can do. So, you know, if we need someone to cry with, it's to offer the, the shoulder for somebody else to cry with. If we're feeling lonely, it's to be there for someone else who's struggling with loneliness. And this goes way beyond these kind of subjects, which is, which is if we're looking for love to help somebody else find love, if we're looking for the job we love, to help somebody else find the job, job that they love. And there's really, really tremendous value in service. And you hear about these things all the time. You talk to people why they chose to go into the profession that they went into, especially if they're in the service profession. Let's say somebody is a counselor for trauma and you say, hey, why did you get into this profession? 
When I was younger, I suffered a trauma and somebody was there to counsel me and I decided I wanted to commit my life to doing that for others. This is what happens with service. Those are the kind of responses you get. And we forget just because we live in a modern world, we're actually a very old-fashioned machine. The human animal is a legacy machine living in a modern world. And we still work the same way we used to. And we desperately need each other to survive. And we desperately need each other to thrive as much as we did when we were living in huts in small tribes of 150 people. And so service is the thing. And that sounds like even for someone who's not feeling like, you know, depressed or at the edge right now, but there's a good checklist question to ask. And I'm going to share that with you here in just a moment. And a cop I'm going to put a copy of it in the description down below uh, with a link to my website so you can go ahead and download it. And please, uh, you can also grab a copy of it on LinkedIn if you'd like. You have to ask yourself this. Is there somebody I could reach out to actually Actually, there may be other people who are in a much worse situation and maybe there's a call that I could make that would be incredibly valuable to that person and help build a relationship within the future. Okay, I could talk about this for hours, but we're going to go answer some questions now from my super chat. So here's a question from Malik. Malik says, if there's no way to get back to normal, as you said, then are we on the right path of building new normal already? Or can you help us with a blueprint that new normal should be based on? Malik, so blueprint? No. Guidances? Yes. I think that humanity has to be. We have to remember that humanity matters. And when I say humanity, I don't mean big H humanity. I mean little h humanity, our humanity. When COVID first happened, so many leaders leaned in on their humanity, whether they were effective or ineffective leaders prior to COVID, right? Many of them said that many of them picked up the phone and said, are you okay? We called our teams just to kind of check in on them or they called their friends to say, are you okay? How are you? Well, we don't need a global pandemic to do that, Malik. That's called good leadership. And we should be doing that all of the time. And we should be encouraging those in our charge to do the same for those in their charge. You know, the hierarchy can still be effective that way. I hope that remains. That's my wish. And I genuinely hope that remains. I really do. I hope that the use of the telephone remains, that we don't just go back to texting all of the time. I hope that putting our phones away and having family dinner remains because I'm really, really enjoying that. And I think there's a lot of kids that'll actually come through with this, including my three boys, with stronger relationships with their siblings, with stronger relationships with their parents because they had so much time together. And kids who may have struggled prior because they weren't getting the kind of attention that they needed because their parents were, you know, so busy with work. Even if a mom or dad are busy on a Zoom call all day, that hour that they would ordinarily just go get a cup of coffee or something, they could now focus on their kid. And I think a lot of kids actually are going to come out of this. And I, and I think kids are remarkably adaptable. I've seen it. My boys, 21, 18, and 13. So, so proud of you. So proud of you. All my life. They are remarkably adaptable.
Here's another question from Marie. Mary. Marie. I, excuse me, Marie. I'm so sorry. Marie says, "Could you give us some tips on how to discover our why?" <laughs> I'm, I'm really honored that you would ask me that. But I read books by Simon Sinek. <laughs> That's what I would do. But all joking aside. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a little exercise right now that you can do with your friends. It's called the friends exercise. Have you seen the show, by the way? Let me know down in the super chat if you have. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. Marie, go find a friend that you love and who loves you. And the person, the, the person who, if they called you at three o'clock in the morning, you would take the call and you, knew, you know that if you call that person at three o'clock in the morning, they would also do the same thing for you, okay? Do not do this with a sibling. Do not do this with a spouse. Marie, listen to my words. Don't do this with a parent. Those relationships are way too close. I want you to do it with a friend, okay? Preferably a best friend if you have one. And then go up to them and ask them this very simple question. Don't text it. Make sure you pick up the phone call and you ask them in a nice, friendly inflection tone once you get to know them a little bit that day. How's your day? How's your week? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Hey, I got a question for you. Why are we friends? And if you have them on FaceTime, which I highly recommend, they're going to look at you like you're crazy because you're asking them to put into words a feeling. You're asking them to use a part of the brain, the, the neocortex that doesn't even control feelings and to put that thing in, the, to put the thing that exists into the limbic brain into language. I've been doing some brain research recently, so my vocabulary, my vernacular is increasing a little bit in that area. Back into the show, <laughs> which the, it, it exists in the limbic brain into language, which it doesn't do. And so it's actually a very difficult question. They're going to say, I don't know. It's not that they don't know. It's that they can't put it into words. So ironically, you stop asking the question, why? And you start asking the question, what? Because what is a rational question? What is it about me that I know that you would be there for, for me no matter what? And they won't know how to answer it. They'll start describing you. They'll say, I don't know. You're funny. I don't, I don't know. I trust you. You've always been there for me, Zareer. You play devil's advocate. You're good. That's the definition of a friend. What, spe what specifically is it about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what? And they'll continue to do the same. They'll keep trying to describe you. You keep playing devil's advocate. You get the idea. And eventually, they're going to give up and they'll start describing themselves. And they'll say, and this is what my friend said to me when I did, when I did it with them. Uh, his name is David Gambino. David, I hope you're listening. David said, I don't know, Zareer. I don't, even I don't even have to talk to you. I could just sit in the same room as you and I feel inspired. And at that moment, I'm not even lying. I can still feel it right now. I got goosebumps. I'm getting them right now. And they will articulate the value that you have in their life. And you will have some sort of emotional response. Mine was goosebumps. I'm getting them on my head right now. Or you'll, 
or you'll kind of tear up like some people do. I've welled up before because what they're telling you is your why. Your why is the thing you give to the world. You can do this with multiple friends, Marie, and they will say almost exactly, if not this, the exact same thing, because that is your why. That is the thing you give to the world. So it may not give you exact language, it may not give you fulfillment, but it is going to put you squarely in the ballpark for what your why is. Okay? Hope that helps. Here's a, an anonymous question. Interesting. I, uh, dear Zareer, I have a question. I have a friend who is currently struggling with depression and he's just not like he used to be. I don't know what to say to him. He's actually annoyed by the question, how are you doing? How can I offer my help? Wow. I'm going to need to take a sip of coffee for that one. So one of the things I learned by accident a couple of years ago is sometimes statements work better than questions because questions people can avoid, right? This is what we all did during COVID. How are you? Fine, fine, fine. Everything's good. Everything's good. Abarigani. Ah, oh, Missouri, Missouri, Missouri. Everyone's fine, right? And then what do you do with that? And so my suggestion is try making a statement, right? Something's wrong. Something's different. You're not the same. I'm worried about you. Make statements. And it leaves very little room for somebody to divert the conversation. You're not the person I know. And do it with love and do it with empathy. And the most important thing, do me a favor, don't ever show up to solve the problem, okay? That's not your job. Especially when you're starting to have a difficult conversation. You don't show up to solve the problem. You show up to create an environment in which they are going to be willing to open up to you. That's the only goal. So try a statement instead of a question. All right, I got time for one more question, everybody. So here's the last question. I'm going to ask this from me to you. What do I mean when I say that everyone is a leader? Can everybody, can everybody be a leader? Drop your two cents in the super chat down below or in the comments for me and let me know what your thoughts are on that, okay? Leadership has nothing to do with rank or title. And I know a lot of people who sit at the very highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we don't trust them and we wouldn't allow them and we wouldn't follow them. And yet I also know many people who sit at the very low levels of organizations that have absolutely no formal ranking and they have no formal authority. And yet they have made the choice to look after the person to the left of them and the person to the right of them. And we would trust them and we would follow them anywhere. My friends, leadership is the responsibility to see those around us rise. It's the responsibility to take care of those around us. That's what leadership is. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those that are in our charge. And the only thing title and authority allow you to do is lead with greater scale. Every single one of us has the opportunity to be the leader that we wish we had every single one of us. So don't forget to ask the answer my question down below in the comments. Is everybody a leader?
Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this Zareer Merwanji audio and video experience, and I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody.